And I thought it was interesting, Jerry, there in your prayer. I do listen to your prayers. I hope we do follow the prayers. <laughs> and I just have a nod. Uh, but in the end, we, we get the victory. And we do, Jerry, and that's where we're going this morning. That in the end, we are victorious. And we're going to look at this bizarre scenario, you know, and it brings up a lot of questions. And here's the thing, you know, in a 30-minute sermon, 30, 35 minutes, we haven't got time uh, to, to delve into all the details and all the, there'll be questions going through this passage. And I could have stopped at every one of them, but I don't think you would have been very happy with me. You know, so, so we can't answer all those questions. I'll do, try to do what we want briefly as we pass it. But it's in Scripture, there's a purpose to it, and, and this is how we approach Scripture. Here's how you read the Old Testament. Here's how you read parables. Here's how we read Bible passages. I hope you see this Sunday by Sunday. Is we read a chapter and we're asking, what is the big picture? Don't do what, don't you know? Don't go down some rabbit hole. You know, oh, that looks, you know, guess, and that looks interesting. I wonder what that's about. And, and and you know, when God is speaking to us, He's interested in these big pictures. He's, there's big messages here. There are details, and if you want to do those, that's what you do Bible college for. And you can spend a 90,000-word dissertation on one verse of the Bible if you want. You can do that. Take you five years, and you get doctor at the front of your name, and you know you get a lot of prestige. But that's where we do that kind of stuff. The Job blogs, when he handles the Bible, is asking, what is the big picture? What's the message here? Let me ask you, because this is important to the sermon, what is a, a big picture of the Bible? So we're talking about big pictures. We're not talking about a chapter now. We're talking about the whole Bible. What is the big picture of the Bible? Jesus. It is. So Jesus is, so if I rephrase it, what is the center of the Bible? It is Jesus. You're right. So associated with Jesus, he is the center of scripture. What is the big message? What is it that's happening what is the big synopsis plot line, the crucial thing? What is the whole story of the Bible all about? Salvation. Yes, that is it. What are you going to say, Graham? God is interested in us. Yes, and they're related, aren't they? It's salvation. So the whole of the Bible is salvation historical. It's concerned with the history of salvation. It's what it's all about. The whole book. If you only get one thing from the Bible, you've got it. Which is, this book is about the salvation of God's people. And therefore, if that is the synopsis of the Bible, the whole picture, every part of the Bible must contribute to that whole. And that's how we read the Bible. So we, we, don't, we come with it with that framework. Okay? This book is about the salvation of God's people. So as I'm reading it, the question is always in the back of my mind is, how is this scene? How is this episode? How is this chapter contributing to or feeding into that main plot. Look, if you're watching a movie and the movie's about, I don't know, uh, uh, rescuing a kidnapped person, that movie doesn't turn into a comedy about fast cars, does it? Halfway through. It, the movie, a good movie, will follow its objective and everything in that movie, if you watch carefully, is feeding to it, isn't it? The Bible is exactly that. The big story is about God saving people. Which means Esther chapter 9 contributes to what storyline? Jesus. Salvation. Salvation. Okay, so that's where we're going. Okay? And I'm going to give you the end before I start, but don't go home. 
Okay? And chapter 9 ends with a V? Victory. Where will God's salvation of humanity end? With a victory. That's what Esther 9 is about. But here's some detail. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to think it wasn't worth going this morning, was it? Mind you, you might think that at the end of the sermon anyway. So, uh, so but let's begin. Let me tell you, uh, look, uh, as I've been, uh, been doing Delvoy and Oliphers and Horses, uh, that came to mind this week when I was thinking of an opening illustration. So Delvoy and Rodney, Oliphers and Horses, they spend their entire lives, don't they, wanting to become millionaires, yes. And Del Boy's famous line is, this time next, next year, Rodney, we'll be millionaires. And he goes on for about 20 odd years. You know, and, and, he, and his strap line, the one that Del Boy, he, he's always coming out of these lines, but always out of context. Uh, they're usually in French, you know, so that he hasn't got a clue what he's saying. Uh, but his, his famous English one is, he who dares, Rodders. He who dares wins. It's an SAS thing, isn't it? I think it is anyway. He who dares wins. But you know, eventually, one of the Christmases, I forget which one now, Delboy and Rodney discover a watch in their garage. It's uh, Harrison's lesser watch. It, it was an almost mythical thing. And it was of immense value. They had no idea. They had this thing the whole time. And they take it into the auctioneers, and, and, they, and, and they're there, and the two of them there, and they're there on the top left. And they say some figures, two and three. I'm thinking, wow, 3,000 quid. Great, we're doing well. And then they realise the three wasn't 3,000 quid. It was three million. Eventually, and then they fainted. I mean, it's, and they're in the car there later and they're celebrating. They get six million dollars, uh, six million quid. They eventually win. And it's a lovely kind of, Ending to this series, although we didn't end there, they just, you know, you know what it's like, they have to make more and ruin it. But the end, in the end, they become millionaires. They do it finally. You know, and, and, and it was the fact that, that Del Boy had this, this go get it approach. He who dares wins, he'd go for something, he'd look for an opportunity, and he'd, he'd, He'd encourage himself when he was down and if things weren't going right, he'll say things, come on Rodney, he who dares, this time next year. And, they, and once and eventually and finally, they became millionaires. Look, I've already said this. Here's where we're going. Hey, we win. We win. Jesus is on, leads the victory and the church wins. Jesus gives the victory and we share that with him. In the end, Jesus' name will be known by every being in the world. I don't know if you know that. In the end, what does Philippians 2 say? In the end, finally, every single person who's ever existed, who's scoffed his name, who's abused his name, who's sworn his name, will, Philippians 2, finally, bow. We win. And you know, that's on the pages of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, all over the place. It's one of those things you can't miss. It's because we need to know that we win. Jesus succeeds. Isaiah 53, he shall look upon the travail of his soul and be satisfied. 
How do you satisfy God? Someone who, who, can, only be, who can only be happy in utter and total victory and accomplishment of his purposes. For God to say he's satisfied at the end of time means that his object, objective has been 95% accomplished. What would satisfy God? For God to sit down and, and be satisfied at the end of time, uh, how much of a victory would he need? 90%? 95%? 96 You can be certain that for God, nothing less than utter and total 100% victory, which means at the end, the victory that we get in Jesus is complete. I was once in a meeting uh, a prayer meeting um, and we had these missionaries from, um, I forget from where now uh, somewhere in the Middle East and he began with this line you know, in a conservative church okay and you know I nearly stood up and you know took him outside and uh, not to fight him but just to get him out of the pulpit he began with this line if I can just remember him now okay the world is in a mess God is desperate he needs our help Seriously? I'm like, really? <laughs> really? I mean, what God are you talking about there? Hey, he's always one step ahead. And, and the thing about God and the victory, he's where in that spectrum of thing, chronologically in time, is God now? How far away is the victory for God? How far, how, how far does he have to look to know that he wins? He just knows. Thank you. <laughs> That's the thing. He just knows. Because he inhabits all of time and spheres. God doesn't need help. He's never in a squeeze. You know those leaflets that we gave out on Friday? It wasn't because poor old God is really struggling to build his church and, and we better not really can't get stuck in and do something because otherwise, we, otherwise we're just not going to do it. No. We do that because it's our pleasure to serve a cause that's already predestined or it's already determined. Do you know ever before one of those leaflets entered the door, God had already, God was already fully aware and was involved in the exact response he would receive. He was already, already ahead of us. And that's the wonder of it. And that's where this is going. We'll look at the story because, hey, there's some interesting stuff there. And hopefully it will develop what we're saying. Our heading is this then. Look, from only furs and horses. He who dares wins. He who dares wins. On the 13th day of the month, of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out at the end of the year. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Earlier in the year, Haman's edict went out. Within a couple of months, the second edict was out. Now all this time has gone, gone on. Everything has changed with the battle about to commence. 
everything is in favour of the Jews. Everything is in their favour. They have state support, empire support. And here's what a commentator says. The outcome of the conflict had already been settled before it began. Because the tables were turned. That's an important part I'm going to draw on in a minute. So even as they begin this battle, it's already a foregone conclusion. And so they're going into this situation knowing that the outcome can only be in their favour. And so the inevitable battle begins, verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those seeking their destruction. And remember, this wasn't offensive. You know, that's something that's very clear. This wasn't an you know, unaggravated, offensive assault. Now that's what it was the other way, wasn't it? Now this is, this is defence. Now no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Why are they afraid of these Jews? Yes. Because now there's a new guy in the palace. What's his name? Mordecai. And you know, look, we're going to see today as nice and as sweet and gentle, young and beautiful and intelligent Esther is. You're going to see something today that just shock you to the core. And Mordecai, okay? Mordecai now is someone, if you're an enemy of God, someone to fear. And so, so look, there's all this fear going around. And verse 3, all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews. It, you can imagine previously, with the previous edict, Haman's edict, who, who was the state helping? Yeah. It was going to be a blood wash, wasn't it? Is, is that the right saying? Blood, blood bath, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was going to be a blood bath. Really? Because the Jews are a minority. We, we've, we've seen, haven't we? Well, we've heard and it's documented what a minority group of like the Jews can suffer at the hands of someone who hates them. 1939 to 1944. Seriously. And everything was against. But now, now, the state is supporting their... Their, their assault or their defence. Mordecai has become someone to fear if you're on the wrong side of God, but someone who's the greatest ally you could want. And so, look, with the support of the empire behind them, verse 5, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what, what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. It's ugly. It's a bloodbath. And look, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's not what you expect God's people to be involved in. And look, and look there's more. Notice here, and this is, notice where Esther rises to the occasion. Look, verse 7, they also killed, and look, oh, where's Penny? You read these name so beautifully Penny if I tried to contribute anything myself I'd just be taken away from, from your perfection so I'll just ignore the names for now okay so these ten sons of Haman okay okay were also killed 
And here, listen to Esther, verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susha permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons, sons be hanged on gallows. What was the present state of the ten sons of Haman when Esther requested this? They were, they were dead. Okay. Now, this is an ancient Middle Eastern war. War. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Practice. After you defeated your enemies, you did what? To, yeah. Utter humiliation. It's why the Romans left the bodies on the cross. So that it acts as a deterrent. Okay, and so not only does she want Haman's family dead and now completely humiliated, made an example of, okay, but she wants the edict to defend themselves using lethal force to be repeated the following day. And incidentally, we'll see next time if we do the final one that that's why uh, there was a, there's, there's the, the difference in date between the country and the city celebration of, of Purim. Because it was over two days. And here's Esther then. Asking for bloodshed a second day. And asking for this humiliation of the sons of Haman. And by the end of it all, listen to this. Verse 15. The Jews in Susha came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar. And they put to death in Susha on the second day. Now 300 men. Obviously, there were still those who, who had somehow escaped the first, um, uh, the, the first round, if you like. And in verse 16, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of them. Not a small amount of people. And it does leave some... It doesn't leave a great taste in your mouth, does it? All this bloodshed and killing. And this seemingly sweet young lady now acting as a stateswoman. But here's the thing. I mean, what happens, what happened in, those, in, in that part of the world if you left some undone situation, some men, some situation related to who you've just assassinated? What happens? It inevitably happens. They, they, they do, they do. And as evil and as horrible as this sounds and the second edict, any military strategist will tell you that this was the only way that Esther and the Jews were going to have any sense of security and ongoing existence. It was the only way. But here's, here's where it's all going is that Esther and Mordecai secure a victory for their people. It's bloody, it's ugly, it's horrible. And he raises questions. He raises questions of war. And you know, you, of course you'll know. You know, the, the, you know Christ, Christians have gone to war against people who've resisted the faith in our history. On the basis of episodes like this. They found, somehow found justification in scripture for, 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 for war, literal war, for death. On the basis of examples such as this.
like I say, this is a passing point, so I'll, I'll just try and be very brief, friends, here. Is, and we're going to come and see shortly. Whatever God, God allowed or suffered in those times in the Old Testament, the final and ultimate holy war has already taken place. It's complete and a victory has been won. There is no place in Scripture for holy war. Where was the ultimate and final holy war? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Once and for all. It's what Jesus could say about enemies. What did he say about enemies? We, we quoted it. Was it last week or the week before? What did Jesus say about enemies? Love those who use you, who persecute you. Do good to them. If they take your coat, your jumper, give them, thank you, Bron. I'll have it now. It's a bit chilly up here, even for me. <laughs> yeah, we can have the heating back on if you want it, you know. Uh, you know and and so, so there is no place, a Christian is never legitimized to go into holy war in Jesus' name. You cannot use Jesus' name ever to authorise the shedding of blood to advance your purpose. Not in Jesus' name. Look, obviously, I'm going to wait deep here and I'll get too political. We're not talking about war in the case of defending our own lives or the lives of other vulnerable people. That's a completely different scenario, isn't it? We're talking about aggressive, offensive conduct in the name of God. To advance our cause. And so whatever God God gave a concession to in times before Jesus, his son fought the ultimate and final holy war, bringing all such wars to an end. <laughs> Sorry, Nicky, I should have given that back to you. But the point is this, okay, so that's a sub-point. And yes, you know, you can ask questions like that when they come up in a passage like that. But the main point of the passage is here. The main point is that the people of God were in danger. An enemy had risen up against them. Their utter annihilation was in view. But God intervenes. He raises a man and a woman and he gives them the victory. He gives them the victory. Look, I've already mentioned World War II. I'll just mention it again. Began, as, you, as you're aware, began... 1939, when Germany advanced on Poland. Initially, it was Great Britain and France, and then all the Australia, New Zealand uh, joined in, and several other nations, Yugoslavia, the Russians, eventually the US of A. And beginning with D-Day, there was a... Just look, throughout that war, throughout that war, the whole thing was going in Hitler's favour. For much of the war... He was prepared. He prepared from the First World War to the Second World War for the Second World War. Whilst everybody else just ignored what was going on, he prepared for a battle which he almost won, seemingly. But beginning with D-Day, things began to turn. And then ultimately there was V-Day. And finally, with the demise, with the advancement by the Soviets first into Berlin, 
Hitler's henchmen began to be captured or take their lives and then finally Hitler and his wife uh, committed suicide. But the war was won. And today, we live in relative peace, don't we, in much of the world. And though it seemed far away, and though we required uh, this assembly of the nations, and he required a, a Churchill and his famous speech, you know, about we'll fight them on the beaches and we'll fight them and wherever else. I can't quite remember him now. You know, and we will never, never, never give in. He would have made a great preacher, wouldn't he? Uh, okay? With all that, finally victory was won. And today we have, we've had all the smaller wars, by the grace of God, we've never been in a situation like that again. The book of Esther is the story of salvation. You have God's people. You have an enemy that rises up against them. You have God's people in disillusionment, despair. You have the, 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 the motions of things begin to change. But it's not quite clear how it's going to work out. Eventually, you have a battle, you have a decisive victory, and you have the salvation of God's people. And so how does that look in New Testament times? How does that look? God's people, who are they? Who are? We are. They're everyone who believes in the name of God. You have an enemy who rises up. His name is, we call him, I hope not. <laughs> Otherwise we are in trouble. Satan. Satan of the devil. He rises up against God's people. He uses people and agents to work. Who was behind Haman? Satan. Satan. Thank you. And so we have a devil that rises up. We have a decisive... No, we have a battle and a decisive victory. We've already said that. What is it? We have a battle and a decisive victory. What is it? Calvary. Thank you. Calvary. Here's what the scriptures say. Um, Colossians 2, 13-15 When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature I mean, uh, Here's a point. When I was dead in my sins there was no way that I could respond to Jesus. But he did something for me. God made you alive with Christ and forgave us all our sins. And here's how he did it. Having cancelled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And here's, here's the warfare language. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, remember Esther's edict that disarmed Haman's, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. What did they do with the ten sons of Haman? A public skeptic, not skeptical, spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see what, what's going on in Esther? In this book that God's name is not even mentioned? We're having played out in a typological fashion. It's what we've been doing on the theology course. The story of salvation. We have uh, the enemy of God rise up. We have him defeated. We have him humiliated. And we have a decisive triumph. And we've already said it once before. Do you know, from that juncture, every member, every person of the Persian community respected Mordecai and Esther in power. 
whatever anyone thought of, of Queen Esther before now, however gentle and meek and safe she may have seemed, boy was the respect from that juncture. Philippians 2, 10, 11. And here's, here's the wonder of your friends. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Don't you ever feel when a door is slammed in your face, when Jesus' name is mocked, or when we are not advancing, when people laugh at us, when they say stupid things to us, when, when, when they close their door on us, when they walk away from us, when they laugh at us. Don't you ever think, you know, you know, don't you ever hope you know, that, that, that they could see that you could be vindicated that you wouldn't look so stupid I do you know, I've had doors slammed in my face people swear at me even this week this dear lady you know, all us, I just said to her you know, look, you know, here's an invitation to a church service and her response was an elderly lady you know, I mean she wasn't nasty but she goes you know Church? I haven't got time to think about church with everything that's going on in the world. <laughs> it's laughable, isn't it? But you know, I want that lady to see. I want her to know it's real. One day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Hey, one day, Jesus' is victory and the fact that Jesus is God and the fact that you are allied to him, you're on the right side, the winning side, one day that will be come to note, come to prominence. One day the whole world will know that Jesus is Lord. One day my family, and you know, do you know I'll tell you this, it's going out on the airways, my family think that I am totally and I'm a total and utter moron. Seriously, they do. They regard me as that member of the family who's probably a little thick, you know, who's a little slow and who's easily persuadable by Westerners. Really that's how I'm looking. That's that's how I'm regarded. And so my voice doesn't carry very far in family debates because I'm that one who's been deluded by the Westerners in the country that we emigrated to, the UK. I, I want them to know one day. And I'm not that stupid. No, maybe a little stupid, but not that stupid. You're not a little, but not that stupid. And that what I believe in is real. That Jesus is God. That he did die for sins. And to put your faith in him is not silly, it's wise. It's the best thing you can do. It's the one thing you need to do. And we weren't stupid coming all the way out here to share the gospel with Australian people. We do it because it's real. And it matters. And his victory, friends, like the Jews' victory. You see, that victory wasn't just a victory, you know, you know a winning battleship on, on a PC. As important as that is, that has little consequence, does it? If the, victory, if, if the Jews lost this battle, 
in the Persian Empire that day, it wasn't just street cred they were losing, they were losing their lives. And this battle that Jesus wins for us, friends, matters. It saves us from hell and promises us heaven. It matters. It matters. And so let me leave this with you. Hey, you're on the victory side. You go into this, you go into your life knowing that Jesus has already secured your victory. When we face opposition from our mortally wounded enemy, hold your ground. Don't be bullied. Here's the thing. Do not be bullied. What does Peter? What does Peter? 1 Peter 5. What does he say about the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion? What are we to do? Resist him. Resist him. You don't have to be enslaved to his lies. You have the victory in Jesus. However big he may be, he is mortally wounded. Don't let him intimidate you. As you walk your walk this week, as you face difficult circumstances, as you face impossible challenges, as you face a a myriad of different things, don't be intimidated. Don't be bullied. Resist him. Because you have, in Jesus, the victory seal. He is a wounded, mortally wounded enemy. And he may have a big bark, but he's fatally wounded. Hey, remember that. Hold your ground. If the work seems to be making little headway, don't be discouraged. Hey, this is Jesus' church. It's one element of it. And however little, however big it may be, this is Jesus' church. We're trying to make inroads into our community, but, but we, we're not despairing. We weren't handing our leaflets on Friday in panic. We're doing it in joy. There was a, you know, as we were walking the streets, there was something upbeat. I had, I'm sure Greg can say the same, and Sid, I had a great time, seriously. Because it's a joy to do, to know that we're doing something that will inevitably succeed and accomplish the purpose that Jesus expects you to have. And so, don't be discouraged. When you face threats, don't fear. When you are ridiculed, stand proud. Here's the thing. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't hide. Put your badge on. Wear your wristband. Stick your Bible on the desk. Really, it's a lunchtime. Don't be embarrassed. Hey, be proud <laughs> to know Jesus. Remember what he said? Who was ashamed of me in this world? I'll be ashamed of them in my Father's presence. And when we feel that we can't face another day, cast yourself upon him and and this is what we meet this is why I say I haven't said this for a while actually so I'm going to say it today don't ever stay away don't ever stay away how oh, look okay you may be Paul Lee okay in which case you need to recover and Paul Lee and Lee I'm sure you'll listen to this hiya mate we're missing you this morning really and uh, you're missed and we love having you because you encourage us and we hope that we encourage you 
And thank you for doing that. And that's the thing, friends. Don't ever stay away. You all need it here. You know, not only would you go away blessed yourself, but you bless somebody else. When Lorraine looks around and you're sitting there, I'm sure this is true, she feels encouraged that you're there. It's good to see you. Your presence encourages the church. Be here. Receive encouragement. Encourage one another. Here's what Hebrews says. And as we forget the importance of these gatherings, friends, this is the pinnacle of our week. This is the highlight of our week. This is when we wear. You know, you may not think it, but these, these are my best clothes. As I told you, you know, but these are my best clothes. I, I make an effort. I, I put my best clothes on. I even have a shave. Seriously, I put a bit of deodorant on. I brush my teeth. I, I stroke my hair down. I haven't got a hairbrush. You know, when you've got this little hair, Brenton, you don't need hairbrushes, do you? Just some polish. Uh, okay? Uh, this, is, this is the highlight of my week. Seriously. This is the best part of the week. It all builds up to this. This is a crescendo. Hey, do you feel that? You know, there was a time when people prepared for Sunday. You went to bed early. Seriously, can I say this to you? When you're here on Sunday morning, in order to be at your best, go to bed early. Just the one night. Have your bath on Saturday night instead of Sunday morning. You know, get stuff ready so you've got less to do in the morning. Put your clothes out if that helps. But the point I'm trying to make is, is have Sunday in view. When you wake up Monday, have Sunday in view and work towards it. Think about it. Dream about it. Think about who you're going to talk to. Think about the word you receive. Think about the songs you'll sing. Think about how great it be with God's people and to worship together and to sing together and let that take you through the week. And here's what Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 tells us. Let us hold on swervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's why we come together. Because we want to encourage each other, spur each other on towards our faith. Let us not give up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing. Boy, they were doing it then. They're doing it today. Do you know COVID has had a dramatic impact on church attendance? Not for us. But the bigger churches can tell you they've had a percentage, 20% at least, of people who don't come to church anymore. Now look, you can do church at home and that's okay when you can't get there. Hey, you may be poorly or, or whatever else it may be and that's always a good backup. And do that. Watch the videos. But it's not a substitute for sitting with somebody and rubbing shoulders with them and putting your arms. Well, don't do that unless, you know, I'm going to get rested tonight. Don't do that unless they're in your little bubble. You know, but to sit and have a coffee with somebody to see somebody, to tell someone you, you, you've thought about him in the week, to ask them how you can pray for them, to ask if they need a hand with something 
that they may be struggling with as, as a single parent or a, a, as a single person or whatever your circumstance may be. Let us not give up meeting together. Don't ever give up as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. What day? Let us encourage one another all the more. What day? What day is this day talking about? Yeah, the victory day, VE day. Or VW day, victory in the world day. Let us encourage one another. Let me, I'll finish with this story if I've got time. I left my watch at home, so I ain't got a clue. Okay? Thank, thank you, Stephanie. So uh, I'll better just get this back. My memory is not always as good as I would like to think. 1962, Cairns, a bell called Cairns, Design, invented rather, the intermittent screen wiper, windscreen wiper. The windscreen wipers were obviously ran by then. Breen invented the intermittent aspect of it. You know the one when we could slow it down for rain? He tried to, he got excited about his invention and he tried to sell it to the, to the big motor companies thinking they'd be excited too. No one was interested. They just turned him down flat. And then he began to notice that as cars came out and new cars were coming out, that they all had his invention on them. <laughs> they all stole his invention. And so he, he took them, took them to court. Got nowhere. Took ten years. For ten years, he persevered. Kept taking his case back. Kept going back. Kept going back. Until eventually... They gave in. He had his victory. He had his day in court. He won. And just one of the big three motor companies of the USA of A in 1979, a long time ago, gave him a $10 million handout. That was just one of the big companies. In 1979, how much money would that be today? Christian. Christian. There may be setbacks. We may look like we're on the losing side. We may sometimes just feel small. Who knows what we may be three years from now? Who knows? But today, we, we may feel small. Okay? You know, things may not seem to go our way. We may have our struggles with sin, struggles without, struggles within, struggles in circumstances, providences that, that leave us, you know, leave us infirmed. Hey, hang in there. Keep persevering. Don't give up. You know you've got the victory. Hang in there. One day, Jesus will return. The day will come. He'll establish a new world. He will apprehend finally our enemy, assign him a place of eternal suffering and all his allies, and will live forever in perfect health with Jesus in a perfect world enjoying the victory. Just think of the Jews and beyond that day they had peace, security, and respect and life. It's all coming. Hang in there. He who dares wins. Brothers. Amen.